complain about the dust in heaven. My eyes are veiled, but I can tell the one in the leather jacket is looming hard in my direction. I can feel his breath upon my neck, like the strong, hot breath of a horse. Because he can't draw me in by sight, he asks, What you drinking, chief? The silence lasts a few seconds, until Lily answers for me. The Cypress de la Corte. I was asking your boyfriend. I stare down at my plate. The lamb sits in a pool of blood. We'll have what they're drinking, and cancel one of those carbonaras. I'll have what he's eating as well. The lamb? Yeah, lamb. Jesus Christ. Would you like the lamb penetrated? Even I stir, curious to know what he means. Penetrated? Just cook it, chief. No need to shag it for me as well. Their laughter paints the walls. I hear a jacket unzipped. Franco minces away. The room cools off as they lose interest in me, and my shoulders fall in my shirt. I steal a glance at her hand, making a fist around a hunk of bread. The way he makes a barrier with his arm around the side plate and bullies that bread suggests etiquette taught by men, and the way they don't talk and eat. I struggle to find my way back into Lily's company. Her head is in profile, staring down her long, curved nose into the restaurant. She feels none of this tension that rakes and bruises me. Her flesh is loose on the bone, her eyes like swallows. I want to go back to where we were, discussing her parents' forthcoming wedding anniversary, but I can't find the page. The mobile phone with its winking red eye sits on the damask tablecloth. Our electronic link to the babysitter back home reminds us that our most precious cargo lies in bed a mile away. Every few minutes, one or the other of us evokes them by name, simply saying, Flora and Elliot purges them out of our systems for a while and allows us to live this moment tonight. But this moment tonight keeps drifting into trouble, and when Lily next mentions the children, it sounds like a prayer to me. What did you make them for tea, Ray? Whatever one of our children orders for tea, the other is guaranteed to contradict. So it came to pass, I say, that I sailed fish fingers and chicken nuggets onto the oven shelf. You spoil them. You should make them eat the same thing. I don't protest, and never do. I can't remember the last argument we had, because it wouldn't have been important. I've never once raised my voice to Lily. And lighting candles for them every night, is that really necessary? Two hours ago, I was much happier, standing with my back to the cooling oven as the children ate like primitives in the kitchen, listening to them telling jokes, recalling school folklore. They kept blowing out the candles so they could light them again, so they could play with matches, play with fire. I tell my wife, Flora said her Miss Mansfield is getting married in the summer, and when she returns to school in September will be Mrs. Scott. Lily twirls Linguini on her fork. Did you know she wants to go to the wedding? Yes, I did, but she can't. She could go to the service, I suppose. 
Elliot, our son, couldn't care less about Flora's teacher's wedding and talked over his sister in the kitchen about losing a trainer from his sports kit. Flora shouted at him, You always do that, ruin what I say, and called him Fat Boy. Elliot, conscious of a few excess pounds, took it to heart. As he fled the kitchen, he threw a punch at his sister. She tried to make the most of it, clutching the injury in both hands. OK, I said, you've secured the penalty, now stop it. No, but how would you feel if your only brother hated you? Elliot doesn't hate you. Yes, he does. He'd be happier if I was dead. That's a terrible thing to say. And it really is a terrible thing that kids can say. Her words aged me. After tea, the 18-year-old babysitter arrived from her house across the road and the children tried being conciliatory. From the landing upstairs, I overheard Flora announce to her brother, Elliot, I think we should agree to stop fighting and save ruining our childhood. Within ten minutes, all was calm again, all was well in the household. Elliot decamped to his bedroom, erecting Sim City on the computer screen. Flora began practising for her grade one flute exam. I stood in the bathroom, naked from the shower, unravelling from a 24-hour shift on the river, the ground still moving beneath my feet. Green, blue and purple bottles lined the glass shelf. Pink conch shells, polished moonstone, topaz and peridot in a Sicilian bowl, all my wife's touches, coloured the bathroom like an ocean. A sea breeze blew in through the open window and rattled the sash frame. Outside, the garden lawn was cracked and parched from drought and littered with bikes, climbing frame, paddling pool, water pistols, footballs, badminton rackets. Seeing these children's things lying out there, lovely in the evening light, so intoxicated me, it took minutes before I could respond to Lily calling me out for dinner at Franco's. From our table, Lily is looking around the restaurant, trying to guess who among the crowd is out on a blind date. As the director of an introduction agency, for professionals too busy to find love, she may have even fixed them up. Academics, television producers, lawyers, bankers, architects pay a grand for a year's membership, and then she gives them access to the files, in which hordes of lonely hearts are profiled according to their interests and their baggage. Clients are offered a minimum of 13 dates for their money, a baker's dozen chances to find true love. For an extra 500 quid, she makes telephone calls on their behalf. Another 500, and you get a personal matchmaking service to do all the prep work. Some cynics would say that's paying top dollar just to get laid, but I'm not one of those cynics. It's Lily who sometimes worries, prone as she is to self-criticism. I tell these men on the phone, come in and have a look at all the lovely ladies on our files. Like they're hookers. She matches her clients according to lifestyles, aesthetics, and then they terminate the arrangement when one or the other lights up a cigarette. It's her nature to scope a room to see who's in, if there's someone she might know. And it's mine too. Except I look through my ears and nose. 
and I don't scope a room to see if I recognise anyone. I scope it to see if anyone recognises me. Right now, I'm trying to be as inconspicuous as possible, unmemorable, and watch her watching others. It's a view I like the most. Three prominent scars on her face. Split eyebrow, one-inch cicatrix below her bottom lip, and a diamond on her chin. Catch the candlelight flickering in a blue glass vial on the table, and give her otherwise unremarkable features a lift, some piquancy. They dramatise the conventional picture. My wife is pretty in obvious ways. There's nothing predatory or sexual. Her eyes show the strain of someone who's spent a lot of time around unhappy people, the lonely and unloved. She has two expressions, one of dispassionate interest she uses at the office so her clients don't get the wrong idea, don't confuse her for a woman who can be taken away from the premises for a thousand pounds. The other expression she reserves for me. It implies there is only clear water between us. To see myself numbered in her eyes is the only security I have in the world. We've been together twelve years and married for ten, and all the trust I've earned, I've earned in that time. The life she led before me is all around us in this town, where she was born and raised. The life I led before her, she takes on faith is what I say it is. Which is true for most people, other than childhood sweethearts, before their slow tango down the aisle. I pour Lily more of this lively red wine from Piedmont, with a nose of blackberry, licorice and wet fox. Any of these your clients, then?